I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 45 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus often preferred to teach in parables, strange riddle-like metaphors. Jesus' parables are the work of creative artistry. To those hungry for the words of Jesus, even his most strange, cryptic, or upsetting teachings are treasure troves of complicated truth. But to the opposition, the ambiguity of Jesus' parables are only further frustration. This is called Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion. It is a, uh, actually a trio of three distinct paintings by Francis Bacon. Uh, it's one of at least 22 such trios that he called triptychs, which would be displayed uh, as a singular collection, like so. And it is one of the world's most known and noteworthy set of paintings. Uh, Francis Bacon intended these paintings to be imbued with communicative purpose, meaning they say something. But here's the thing. We don't know what exactly. There are theories, of course, uh, what's often called interpretations of the paintings. There might be an insight or two from the artist himself, but it's not like there's a commentary printed beneath each painting that says, oh, so here's exactly what I was getting at in case you didn't pick up on it. Um, to many artists and art lovers around the world for decades, uh, this, this, these paintings were done in 1944. This and other works by Francis Bacon have been a source of inspiration and emotional resonance. They've inspired an entire new generation of similarly-minded painters, but to others, they're just defensive or grotesque or even worse, meaningless. They're just weird shapes, and really, who cares? And if Francis Bacon had something to say with this, then why not say it some other way, some less confusing way or less ambiguous or less grotesque? Because I would argue that this would stifle the message rather than amplify it. And here's the thing. I think that Jesus of Nazareth might agree that if he were to say it differently, it would have stifled the message rather than amplify it. Jesus is creative. He's an artist like God himself, even a frustratingly mysterious one at times. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. For quite some time now, two years actually, if anyone's counting, we've been working our way through this first century biography of history's most controversial figure, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, tonight we're getting into one of Jesus' most famous and preferred methods of teaching, and that's something called the parable. So, bit of a heads up, chapter 13 of Matthew's biography of Jesus has a lot of parables. The plan for tonight is to take on parable one, number one and then kind of unpack the concept of parables themselves and why Jesus preferred them. Then next week, we'll take on the other parables, what Jesus meant by them for his audience then, and what he's getting at for his audience today. Does that sound all right? You guys into it? You okay? Great. All right, let's hit the book, Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Okay, so pause. Uh, in the story, this is a scene transition. Remember where we left off last week? Jesus went inside. He was inside teaching. He had kind of blessed the people seated around, seated around him saying, these people are like my family. They're like my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And then Jesus leaves the house and the crowds uh, follow him. They gather up around him. And Matthew points that out to remind us, the readers, 
that the work of Jesus always inevitably goes out. One scholar I read this week noted that, and I quote, neither Jesus nor his church is housebound. So once out, Jesus begins to teach. That's kind of one of his things. But this time, he does it with parables. Look at verse 3. Then he told them many things in parables. Now, a parable, I'm sure you guys already know, is like a short kind of fictional anecdote that makes a, a moral point. Jesus is famous for them. Of course, this begs the question, why? You've got the attention of crowds, lots and lots of people. You've got the world's most important message. Why send it via the vehicle of a parable? We'll get to that in a bit. Let's read one of those parables first. Verse 3 goes on. Jesus says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. 160, 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, uh, we'll get to it more as we go, but spoiler alert, this parable is about the kingdom of God. Now, think about this. The kingdom of God essentially is God's triumphant renewal of all things, both in the here and now and eventually on a coming day on the horizon in the grand sense over the entire cosmos. It's the inbreaking kingdom of a new humanity. It's a story of a broken world being restored one person at a time. So you're thinking, how to best capture the power and majesty of this concept uh, in metaphor? Should it involve bronze chariots or, you know, like a stampede of buff warriors, you know, or like a tidal wave, you know, something from nature might capture it, or a hurricane, something that powerful sweeping over a landscape. And the answer apparently for Jesus is no, some farmer planting seeds. And in fact, most of them don't work. And uh, I think that's just insane. One, one scholar that I read this week observed this about the surprising nature of the metaphor. He said, the kingdom of God that Jesus brings is present, surprise, in our weakness, <laughs> in seeds. Human beings do not like Jesus' low-profile pro, low and nonviolent way of representing God in the world. They want a more spectacular, macho, realistic, and effective Savior. And that is why the great majority of the human race will always, if even subtly, reject Jesus. But it isn't just the, the content or the characters in the parable that seem peculiar. It's the question that we raised earlier. Why teach in parables at all? Theologian Stanley Hauerwas described parables like this. He said that they are extended metaphors or comparisons designed to draw the hearer into a new awareness of reality as revealed by Jesus. Yet, their artful nature adds a special twist of paradox an unexpected challenge. Other scholars put it similarly. Here's R.T. France. He said, A parable is an utterance which does not carry its meaning on the surface and which thus demands thought and perception if the hearer is to benefit from it. Learning from and responding to a parable is not a matter of simply reading off the meaning from the words, but of entering into an interactive process to which the hearer must contribute if true understanding is to result. Here's one more from C.H. Dodd. He said, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application to tease it into active 
thought. So the parables, in this sense, are, are very much works of creative artistry. So the disciples, they're hearing these stories, and they're understandably curious, if not frustrated, and they ask Jesus, point blank, look down at verse 10. It says, the disciples came to him, Jesus, and asked, why do you speak to people in parables? He replied, because, listen, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Now, this sounds on the surface like Jesus is making a complicated situation worse, but scholars actually argue that what Jesus means by the secrets of the kingdom is his intimate presence, meaning the disciples have already stepped into the inner circle of Jesus. They spend all their time with him, the 12 in particular, but not the crowds. One scholar put it this way, it's like Jesus is saying, you have me, the mystery in person, he is suggesting. But they haven't made that decision for me yet, and that takes time and stories. Okay, but then things get weirder. Look down at verse 12. Jesus goes on and says, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Sounds great. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he goes on to quote the Old Testament. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their eyes, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. All right, so before we figure this out, we have to go backward in time to the Old Testament. So keep Matthew bookmarked for just a second. Turn to the left in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, chapter 6. It's fine to consult the table of contents, or I guess if you have the digital version, you can just go poke, 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 poke. And, well, I guess you have to poke the right things. <laughs> uh, don't, don't just do that. I don't think you'll get anywhere um, that way. Let's read uh, Isaiah 6. This is perhaps the most famous scene in Isaiah. It has to do with the, the prophet experiencing this incredible vision. Um, Isaiah 6, beginning with verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So the scene is Isaiah standing before Yahweh God. The whole thing is loaded with profound the theological ramifications. It's actually a really beautiful story. Go and read it on your own time. I want you to see something specific here, so skip down to verse 8. It says, Then I, Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Does that language sound familiar? Read, verse, read on, verse 11. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, until the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So there's a lot there, obviously, but... The scene in context is essentially this. Uh, Israel is in a season of ongoing rebellion against their God, Yahweh. So Yahweh summons his prophet, Isaiah, and he says, listen, go and give Israel this message of warning, but know in advance that they are so far gone 
they will not hear you. In fact, even this word will uh, solidify them in their hardened hearts. Um, Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree, and even the remaining stump that's left behind is going to be scorched. So, you know, it's a bummer. It's a bummer of a message for Isaiah. But out of that stump grows a holy seed of hope. After all, hasn't God made a promise to Abraham and to David that he would bless Israel, and through Israel, all peoples of the world would be blessed? So then it leaves you, the reader, asking the question, okay, well, what's the holy seed? Now, in the story, Isaiah, it goes on, he goes to Ahaz, which is a king in Jerusalem, and he tells him the bad news. You know, Israel's going to be chopped down, all that stuff. But he also begins to kind of further unpack this idea of a holy seed. So if you're still there in Isaiah 6, flip over to chapter 7 real quick. And read with me verse 14. Uh, Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore Yahweh himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel or God with us. So in the next few chapters, the story goes on. He describes this seed in more detail, detail as kind of a shoot of growth from this smoldering stump of Israel, a coming king that will be empowered by God's spirit to rescue God's people once and for all, unite all nations under his kingship, rule with justice and peace forever and ever. Okay, back to Matthew 13. Now, remember at this point in the story, Jesus' disciples, his innermost disciples, have already come to believe that he is the messianic king long promised to initiate God's kingdom and restore Israel. There's a little little bit of gaps in their belief, but they think Jesus is who he says he is. But again, Jesus is not doing it the way anyone had quite expected and certainly not the way anyone had hoped for. In fact, Jesus has got the world's most important message and he's communicating it with parables. This is understandably frustrating, and his disciples just ask why. In fact, their language is kind of loaded with frustration, and they don't, they, they're baffled. Why are you talking to the people this way? And Jesus answers them by bringing to mind a story from Isaiah. Now, remember, this story immediately, in, in Matthew's gospel, it immediately precedes several instances of Israel's leaders refusing to accept or acknowledge the true identity, identity of Jesus. They're lobbying all kinds of accusations at him. He's a phony. He's got an evil spirit, all that stuff. And Jesus says, that's why. That's why parables. His message, like Isaiah's, is going to have a paradoxical effect on his listeners. See, the power of stories, even cryptic ones, even metaphorical ones, will penetrate the hearts of some, and powerfully so, but it's going to harden the hearts of others. Jesus is actually the holy seed of hope, and they still will not repent. I've been for the last uh, year, actually, researching and writing this book about art and the Bible, and and I've been reading about this well-known paradox in uh, artistic expression. See, the idea is that you can water down the creativity of an artistic message to the degree that it becomes uh, accessible or comprehensible for a wider audience. And it happens all the time. The more watered down, the more comprehensible, the more appealing, and the wider the audience. But there's a catch, obviously. The more watered down, the weaker the message for those who have ears to hear, so to speak. So the more creatively uninhibited the message, the more communicative power it holds for an audience that is prepared to receive it. The more watered down, the less powerful. 
And so in art, one of the chief ends of the artist is what they call creative freedom. And one of the great struggles of art and commerce, or art for money, is the intervention, intervention of those who would water it down. So that's like movie studios or censors, record labels, managers, publishers, whatever it might be. Because when money is involved, uh, the wider the audience, the better. But a credible artist is more often most concerned with an uncompromised realization of their vision, whether it communicates to everyone or not. So I was reading a story about a, this, uh, in the late 90s, this controversial musician was set to perform on the MTV Video Music Awards, and the, the performance was filled with all sorts of offensive and provocative, provocative theatrics and imagery. And so all these reporters were asking why afterward, what's up with all this stuff? And the, the musician said that the song that they had performed was this indictment of the Hollywood lifestyle. So provoking this particular audience in LA at the VMAs was appropriate. And the reporter pushed back and said, well, people don't get it. People won't get that. And the musician said, most of them don't deserve to. And that's an extreme way of putting it, but you probably understand the same phenomenon from the way you and your friends or your spouse or whoever enjoy very different types of movies or music or what have you, whether you're a huge art fan or not. Uh, my wife, Abby, and I, for the most part, there's a, there's a little bit of overlap, but for the most part, we could not have more different um, aesthetic preferences. And um, we usually have playful debates uh, about it and we tease each other, but in the end, we usually just concede that we make up very different audiences and that's very fine. So I could, if I you know, want to, I could try to convince Abby that, you know, like Taylor Swift's music is quite bad, but really, I'm, I'm not the target audience, and uh, uh, of course, I wouldn't like it. It's not for me. Now, if uh, Taylor Swift adjusted her music to better suit my taste, then I doubt that the Abbeys of the world would like it half as much. And why do that? Because I'm not even the, into it in the first place. So in that sense, I get it less and less and less, and Abby gets it more and more and more. And as silly as that sounds, that's kind of the same idea here. Jesus is crafting his message with creative precision, like an artist does. He realizes that his audience includes the hostile, the closed off, the hard-hearted. They don't want to hear it. But it also includes the eager, the perked ear, the, the supple, soft heart. And he understands that they, the latter, they will pour over his words and they will investigate them for hidden meaning and they will apply them to the fertile soil of their own lives. But that other crowd, the words will only further frustrate them. Hauerwas put it like this, Jesus uses some of the parables to instruct the crowd and all the parables to instruct the disciples. Like Jesus said, the people who already have the message, who are already accepting it, they're already on board, they're going to get even more. But those who won't have it, those who are standoffish, accusatory, the parables will only further confound them. And I think there's a, a note of discernment here for us as we confront a world that's largely uninterested in Jesus. Uh, we are to, like Jesus, always pursue, always be bold, always be brave and transparent, tell the story of Jesus. But there are people who won't have it, who won't hear it. And that's not us versus them. It's not elitism. It's not like fatalism, don't even try. But it is a sad and sobering reminder. Um, another scholar, R.T. France, said this, the same parable which enlightens one may puzzle or even repel another. A parable is not an easy option for understanding, but a challenge to which not everyone will be able to rise. But of course, the 
innermost circle of Jesus, what we often call the 12 or the apostles of Jesus, are in Jesus' innermost circle. Look at, look at what he says to them in Matthew 13, verse 16. He goes on, But blessed are you, your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In other words, for centuries now, Israel has been waiting for the Messiah, the long-anticipated king of Israel. Isaiah never got to see the, the holy seed. He never got to see this Emmanuel character. But now, this unlikely ragtag group of what we think were very young men are seeing him with their own eyes and hearing him with their own ears. And to them, Jesus offers a bit of a director's commentary. He doesn't always, he's like, I'm not always going to do this, but here, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. And I think it's kind of funny because the parable now, it seems really obvious to read it. Like, you needed a commentary on this one. Some of the other ones are way more weird. Um, it's almost like a commentary on Zootopia. Did you guys see Zootopia? It's like every now and then you hear someone say, like, I think Zootopia had a mess. Yes, we got the message, man. It's the most, world's most thinly veiled metaphor ever. But it's good. So that's my recommendation for Zootopia. Check it out. Um, <laughs> so maybe the parable seems thinly veiled, but we're going to take a closer look. Look at verse 18. Listen to what the parable of the sower means, Jesus says. Verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So the evil one is a term referring to the Bible's primary antagonist, a creature called the devil or the Satan. We don't have time to unpack this concept in detail tonight. We just did an entire series about the devil and his work called uh, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to the podcast if you're so inclined. But the long and short of it is that the devil is actively involved in leading people astray with lies. So the kingdom message is introduced, but it's confusing. It's difficult to grasp and in sweeps the devil to say things like, yeah, but isn't this silly? And, and really, can't this be refuted? Here, listen to these other voices. Listen to these other stories. Put this nonsense away. Isn't this too dogmatic? Isn't this too religious? It's too intolerant. Here, let me, let me take that. You'll be better off without it. And don't uh, misunderstand. The devil cannot coerce anyone. He deals in manipulation and influence like a bird which comes along and snatches a seed from fertile soil. And Jesus goes on, verse 20. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Uh, one of my earliest friends that I made after moving to the Pacific Northwest was a young lady who was brand new to Jesus. Although it was a beautiful story, it was a huge encouragement. Um, she was, as I recall, a PSU student who had somehow wound up uh, at church on a Sunday evening, maybe some friends invited or something like that, and she had begun to encounter Jesus, and powerfully so. Uh, she was just blown away by his teaching. She had felt the presence of the Spirit in her life. She was all in. So for a year or two, she showed up, she read the Bible, she asked lots of really good questions, she worshiped with wild abandon, she 
prayed. She lived in community with other disciples of Jesus. She was, really, frankly, an encouragement. She was an enthusiastic example of what it, we sometimes call a conversion, someone who is far from the way of Jesus or, or God and suddenly encounters God with power and is all in. Her own family, who had, I think, no faith tradition whatsoever, thought the change was incredible. They didn't have any idea what was going on. It was really weird to them, as it often is. And then one day, I began to hear stories which ultimately concluded in, she's out. She got to thinking about it. Um, she had a few challenging conversations with friends who pushed back. She took some new classes, made some new friends, and rather than using those uh, as to her advantage to build up her own faith, she couldn't untangle a few issues, issues and ultimately abandon ship. And this section of the parable is particularly interesting uh, given the popular theological idea of what's sometimes called eternal security, or in common speak, once saved, always saved, which is a problematic idea to say the least. If what you mean by once saved, always saved is that there is no amount of mistakes or external forces that can come in and steal you away from God's love, absolutely, that is true. But... If what you mean by once saved, always saved, is that immediately after you come to faith, God revokes your free will and you are left with no choice but to write it out, then I'm not so sure. I think that you can choose to follow Jesus and you can choose to reject Jesus. Now, notice in the text that Jesus says, the person in question, quote, hears the word and then again, quote, receives it with joy. He doesn't say, here's the word, but was never really in, or he doesn't say, they just heard it, but they didn't really receive it. In fact, the language implies uh, application and lifestyle and actually going for it. They were in, they heard the word, they received it with joy into their lives as an outworking of discipleship, and then they fell away. And the story is, is really dreadfully ordinary. Deconversion is the new conversion. I was talking a, to a friend of mine recently who is trying her best to navigate conversations with another friend who's enjoying a very outspoken abandoning of faith. And this friend of hers told her that everything going well in her life at the moment she owes to denouncing Jesus. Because it's a really popular thing to do, cliche even. Denounce faith, post about it you know, on social media or make a blog or a podcast or something like that. Uh, don't, don't, or, you know, another popular option is, maybe the more popular option, don't denounce Jesus overtly, just kind of make a new version of him <laughs> that suits you much better, suits your preferences much better. And this is, if you're wondering, also denouncing Jesus. The idea is what people want is the kingdom. Everyone, frankly, wants the kingdom. They just want it without the king, which isn't real. It doesn't happen that way. And sure, there are all sorts of people who were never really in, we see that for sure, not in any meaningful sense anyway, before they bail out, but some are. Some hear the word, receive it with joy, but then when persecution or trouble come, and they always do, they quickly fall away. But it isn't just, it isn't just trouble and persecution that stunt growth. Look at verse 22, Jesus goes on, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, making it unfruitful. So in other words, fear for comfort and security, wealth, money, having stuff. It is, in the story of Jesus, enough to stop the seed from growing. And it actually makes perfect sense. If the disciple of Jesus 
becomes fretfully concerned for comfort, security, prosperity, they will eventually cease to be disciples of Jesus, who famously promises the inevitability of discomfort and trouble and persecution and poverty, either in the financial sense or poverty of spirit. Again, this from Harawas. He says, it's hard to be a disciple and be rich. The lure of wealth and the cares of the world produced by wealth quite simply darken and choke our imaginations. This is particularly a problem in America where Christians cannot imagine how being a Christian might put them in tension with the American way of life. This is as true for Christians on the left as it is for Christians on the right. Both mistakenly assume that freedom is a necessary condition for discipleship. It's not inherently bad to have things to have a bank account, to be comfortable. It's not. But if any of those things become absolutely crucial in your life, then your relationship with Jesus is in trouble. And notice in the story uh, of all the different seeds and what happens to them, there's different lifespans in the story. The first seed doesn't even take root. It gets snatched up right away. The second seed takes root, but only briefly. The, the last seed kind of grows up and out, but the subtle and sinister troubles of life and money choke it to death after it's grown. But then there's one more seed. Look down at the last bit in verse 23. But, Jesus says, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, remember, uh, Jesus is talking to Jews in the ancient Near East, people well acquainted with agriculture, uh, an agrarian lifestyle. So according to one scholar, the average yield of a single grain in Palestine at the time could, be, could have been around 35. Uh, in remarkable cases, maybe 60, meaning Jesus' language is like strikingly hyperbolic here. And this stands in sharp contrast to the four instances of failure that you get at the beginning of the parable, seed that bears no fruit. In the end, the one successful seed yields more fruit than one thought even possible. So the story goes, to recap, seeds and failure. More seeds, failure. More seeds, failure again. Another attempt, nothing. But then, finally, one seed makes it, and it grows. And there's more growth, miraculous growth, a hundred times more, the end. Now, where do you and I fit in all of this. I I want you guys to see something here. In this story, most of Jesus' audience only get the parable, right? He's in a boat. He's in front of a big crowd. They only hear the parable. Later on behind the scenes, they get the director's commentary. And there's so much there. There's like a riddle. There's an invitation. There's a beautiful secret. We have a lot of context, especially if you have any experience in church and listen to this guy yammer on all the time. You have some context for things like the kingdom of God and the meta-narrative of the scriptures, but these people would have been like, what? Seeds? Um, So it's all very mysterious. And Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, they get everything. They get the answer to the riddle. They get the intimate presence of Jesus himself. His disciples get that. And so do you. Think about it. Here you sit some 2,000 plus years later, and you're reading what Jesus said in secret to his disciples. You're eavesdropping on that intimate conversation. And add to that that you have what they did not have, the indwelling spirit of Jesus himself, readily available to you at all times. You have so much 
And in, according to Jesus, you're going to get even more. To those who have even more will be given to them and in abundance. But there are others, maybe someone you know, maybe someone in this room, for them, both the, mysteria, the mysteriousness and the plainness of Jesus are frankly uh, insufficient or in other times uh, inadequate or even offensive. If there was proof then maybe. If there was a sign, then maybe. If Jesus looked a little bit more like my expectations or my preferences, then maybe. But he has the nerve to be cryptic and vague and ambiguous. No thanks. And even this little insight that they have is being taken away by the way they harden their own hearts Now, next week, we'll talk more about the specific meaning of the parables and exactly what Jesus is getting at with them. But tonight, to end, before we worship again, let me ask you guys something that I've been wrestling with this week. Do you realize, really realize, that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you? Um, Even as an insider, as a friend of Jesus, which which is what you are, The kingdom of heaven is often mysterious. Sometimes Jesus alleviates that mystery. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he brings you aside and he says, listen, okay, fine. Here's what the parable means. And other times he doesn't. I think of a story in John's biography of Jesus, one of my favorite stories about Jesus. It's actually in John chapter 6 if you want to read it on your own time. Um, The long and short of it is that Jesus could have plainly explained or at least alluded to what would become this beautiful concept of communion, what we call the Lord's Supper. And instead, he goes on this out of nowhere, this spectacularly grotesque and frustratingly opaque rant about cannibalism. He says, uh, and I quote, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And Jesus says this at a synagogue in Capernaum. to a crowd of people. And some of them say, in the, in the text, it says, some of them say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're like, what the heck? And then others respond with a simple and hilarious, one of my favorite lines in any of the Gospels, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? <laughs> and um, <laughs> Jesus is uh, communicating something beautiful and profound, and he shrouds it in the confusing secrecy of, frankly, a very ugly, very visual metaphor like artists often do. And many of his disciples leave because of it. The text specifically says that even the ones left sticking around, Jesus turns to them and says, does this offend you? No explanation, no insider commentary. And then he asks them plainly, you do not want to leave too, do you? As if to provoke them further. Regardless of your particular personality and wiring, along the road of discipleship, you will reach points in which you prefer clarity. (laughs) You will ask Jesus to be candid. You will feel as though in your bones what you need most are answers, specific answers to specific questions. And sometimes Jesus will answer with clarity. Sometimes Jesus will be very candid. And other times, he simply answers your question with other questions. Does this offend you? Will you also leave like so many others, like so many seeds that were stolen or scorched or choked away from the kingdom? For those of you who have begun to step into embrace what we call listening prayer, um, or if you've just had someone else listen on your behalf and speak prophetically over you, isn't it more often than not an image 
or, or a metaphor, a strange scene that plays in your imagination and someone else's imagination. Not always, but most of the time, in my experience, that's how it works. And then there are times when that image hits with immediate profound resonance and you're like, yes, that is for me, I know what that means. Uh, I was once praying with a friend of mine who had, and I had this elaborate scene. It was so specific, so I was convinced it's probably from God's Spirit. Maybe not, but probably. And it had like a little boy in a balloon, and there was like running, and I, I didn't get any of it, frankly. And I was tempted to just be like, whatever. I don't hear anything. Um, but uh, And I had a theory. I was like, maybe it means this. As I was listening, I was like, maybe I'll try to explain it like this, because I thought he's going to be like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. But I just described it to him. I said, this is what I see. Does that mean anything to you? And he knew immediately what it meant. And it wasn't at all what I thought it was. I was not even close, frankly. Um, But it was powerful in that moment. And it was vague and ambiguous and visceral. And then there are times when you say, you know, I've had this happen where I say, man, this is what I see. Does this mean anything to you? And they go, not really. (laughs) And I say, well, maybe I'm off. Uh, That happens for sure. Or maybe not, and we just don't get it yet. And then I hear stories that they realized later that evening, or I realized later that evening, or later that week, or even years later in some cases, that, oh, wait, God did say something about that all those years ago, and I thought it was just crazy at the time. But then on the other hand, there are times when He's abundantly clear. I think of a time here at Van City when during pre-gathering prayer, which is something we do every week uh, before the gathering to listen and see what God's saying and doing for this particular gathering, there was someone who's like, ah, this sounds crazy, but I I feel like there's a woman, this is her specific age, this is her specific hair color, this is her specific ailment, and this is what God wants to say. Maybe I'm wrong. And uh, and we were like, maybe, but let's try it. It turns out they weren't wrong. The, The woman in question was there. Every single detail was spot on, even down to the hair color though her hair had been dyed, which I thought was pretty cool. So it's like, I was like, ha-ha. Um, uh, and as I, as I recall, I could be wrong, but as I recall, there were no metaphors or images or riddles. It was just the information, as plain as it could possibly be, and it was spot on. Sometimes it's like that. But then in my own life, I think of times when it's not like that at all. Just a few months ago, I had been working through something in my spiritual formation, kind of hitting a, a wall in something, And I wanted an answer so bad to a very specific question I'd been asking and asking every single morning. Um, And one morning in prayer, I was listening and I saw I had this very clear visual. It was me and I was like standing on this kind of watery landscape and Jesus was there. And he pointed to what seemed like hundreds of doors that were lined up coming out of the water on the horizon some distance from where we stood. And, And I knew in that moment, I was like, this is it. I can tell that I'm about to get that answer or at least that answer is like within range. And, uh, and then right as that occurred to me, one of the doors, just one specific door lit up like from the inside. Um, and I knew that that door represented the answer that I'd been craving, that I'd been asking for, which confirmed a few things. There was an answer, so that was comforting, that Jesus knew what it was. He was the one who drew it to my attention. So that was great. Um, and I knew that whatever it was, it was on the other side of that door. It was within reach. And it was very powerfully vivid, too. And then, I, I, swear, I swear I'm not making this up, in the image I like kind of stepped forward and he grabbed my arm and was like, why don't you just stay here for a second and sit with me? And then the doors went away. <laughs> and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? And he was like, he was saying, no, that, that can wait. Why don't you just sit here with me for a second? And the door, along with whatever was on the other side, vanished. There was nothing left but to sit with Jesus 
And it, and it was quite beautiful. He had a lot to say through it and all. So Becca is so frustrating sometimes. I'm like, why does he do that? Why does he do that? And I think the answer is because Jesus, like God himself, is an artist. He's not just concerned for communicative clarity. He could say, he could spell it all out for you, but that's not exactly what he wants. Sometimes he seems uninterested in clarity at all. And that's because Jesus doesn't want to simply tell you stuff and that's it. He wants to know you. And he wants for you to know him and what he's like and the way that he talks, the way that he talks to you in particular and why he talks to you that way. He wants to speak the truth to you at the deepest level of your soul. Artists are like that. They want to communicate. They want to be known through their art. But really, we're all like that. We want to be known. and We want to know other people. So does God, in whose image we are created. Now, Francis Bacon, the gentleman I referenced at the beginning of the teaching, he could have just written whatever it was he wanted to say on a big canvas and put it up on a wall. Um, we'd all get it. We'd all probably know exactly what he wanted to say. We wouldn't be talking about it right now. I wouldn't have shown you the paintings, that's for sure. Um, we often want clear answers because clear answers are efficient. But the truth, which is both bitter and beautiful, that we have to face is that Jesus just doesn't seem concerned with efficiency. Relationships, by nature, are inefficient. Have you been in one? They're horrible. <laughs> um, they're messy, they're complicated, they're dynamic, they change, they oscillate over time. And yes, you have been given the secrets of the kingdom. That's true, he said that point blank, you have. You have access to the mysterious person of God, what he's doing in the world, what he wants to say to you. You actually have the indwelling spirit of God in you if you're a disciple of Jesus. He's that close. It is made clear in that intimate seclusion with Jesus. When you sit down with him and you say, what does this mean? And he says, here is what the parable means, so to speak. And he does that. But it's also made clear when you're baffled and you have no idea what's going on and Jesus says, does this offend you? Are you leaving too? All of that is knowing him. Knowing Jesus is active, not passive. So reading and studying the scriptures is one way that we know him. This book that he loved so dearly and valued so deeply, that's one way to sit in prayer and to seek his voice, like the stories I've been telling where you just sit down and say, what do you want to say and listen? That's one way. Really to just think about Jesus is one way to know him, to meditate on him, to wrestle with your questions and your doubts in conversation with other people through books and education, all that stuff. No, that's bad. That's good. Confusion, frustration, joy, admiration, love, romance, all that is how you know Jesus. It's all part and parcel of a healthy, functioning relationship. But none of it is a game of trivia. When you know enough stuff, you're good. All of it is the ongoing, messy inefficiency of love of relationship. And all of that is part of what it means to have the secret, the frustratingly ambiguous secret. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you in Jesus. So let's pray together and spend time in his presence before we worship together.
Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can find more teachings, resources, or connect with us at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially by visiting vancity.church/give.